spirituality, consciousness, health, and mindset. Welcome to the Ascend Podcast. We're your hosts. I'm Chris Hopper. And I'm Dan Harrison. Together, we are all wisdom and knowledge seekers. Hey, what is up everyone? This week on the Send Podcast, we dive into the simulation theory once again. But this time, it isn't just me and Chris talking about life as one giant video game. We have Tom Campbell rejoin us again on the podcast. He was a former NASA physicist. He worked for the Missile Defense Department and also has out-of-body experiences on his resume to walk us through it. So anyway, Tom Campbell began researching states of consciousness with Bob Monroe at the Monroe laboratories in the early 1970s and Tom has been experimenting with and exploring the subjective and objective mind ever since. For the past 30 years Tom has been focused on scientifically exploring the properties, the boundaries and the abilities of consciousness and during that same time period he's excelled as a scientist, he's worked on large system simulation, technology development and integration and complex system vulnerability and risk analysis. And that is basically the short breakdown of this man's amazing long list of credentials. And we actually last spoke to Tom about a year and a half ago. And we both felt that our understanding on this topic has now got much better. And we felt we could now jump back into Tom's mind and pull out some deep gems that might have not even been heard of before. And we certainly feel we did that. So if you do want to do some research before we do jump all over in this podcast, as we definitely do, I would recommend checking out and diving into Tom's work. Check out his book, My Big Toe, and delve into the universal mind that is YouTube, and check out all of his free content and videos on there. But anyway, the idea that we may be living in some sort of simulated universe is really starting to build up more momentum, with the likes of Elon Musk and many other high-credential people now coming forward as well. And what better conversation to delve into on the podcast than a conversation about the nature of reality? I know we all love it. So anyway, just to paint a little bit substance to this conversation, I'm going to play a quick snippet from Professor Nick Bostrom where he quickly breaks down the three stages of the simulation argument. This is an argument that tries to show that at least one of three propositions is true, although it doesn't tell us which of these three. The three propositions in question is first, that almost all civilizations at our stage of technological development go extinct before they reach technological maturity. So that's the first possibility. Uh, A second possibility is that there is a very strong convergence among all technologically mature civilizations in that they all lose interest in creating ancestor simulations, as I call them. These would be very detailed computer simulations of people like their historical forebears. Detailed enough that a simulated people in these simulations would be conscious. So the second possibility is that they just lose interest in doing this. And the third possibility is that we are almost certainly living in a simulation. So there's this argument that shows that one of these three is true. And the full argument involves some probability theory, but the basic idea can be grasped quite simply, which is that suppose it were the case that the first possibility did not obtain. So then some 
non-trivial fraction of civilizations at our stage eventually reach technological maturity. Then suppose the second possibility also does not obtain, so some non-negligible fraction of those mature civilizations are still interested in using the resources to running ancestor simulations. You can then show that because each mature civilization that devoted some resources to this purpose could run astronomical numbers of ancestor simulations, you can show that if the first two possibilities do not obtain, then there will be many many more simulated people like us than there will be non-simulated people like us. In other words, almost all people with our kinds of experiences would be living inside simulations rather than outside them, if the first two possibilities are false. And conditional on that, we should therefore think we are probably one of the typical simulated people rather than one of the exceptional non-simulated people. So the structure of the argument then is that if you reject the first two hypotheses, then the third one follows, which then means you can't coherently reject all three. That, that's the structure of the simulation argument. So that was Professor Nick Bostrom explaining his argument which considers the surprising possibility that we live in a simulation. Fascinating stuff. So anyway, we've all, we have decided to split this conversation into two parts so it's a bit more digestible for your mind. And this one does really get tasty and jumps right down the simulation rabbit hole. And it might just actually be a bit too much for our holographic minds. But anyway, I know you're going to love part one of this conversation. But before we do jump with this one, if you guys are loving the podcast, please support the podcast by going to our Patreon page. And Patreon allows you guys to crowdfund this thing. And in the process, you get to receive some really cool rewards. As you know, we've never bombarded you guys with stupid ads or products. And if you are loving the podcast, just please spare a few minutes, check out the different award tiers we've set up for you, and see if any tickle you fancy. So anyway, just as well, we've also added a new tier as well, which a lot of you guys were asking for, and we've called it the Mind Awakens. So basically, a lot of you guys were asking if we could set up a group where all of us like-minded people could all come together, share some ideas and have some fun and go deep down the rabbit hole all together. So anyway, we've now decided to set set that up. So basically, it's called the Ascend Community Hangout, where we can all come together, ask deep questions all in one spot, talk about deep topics with me and Chris, and every now and again, there'll be appearances from guests who've been on the podcast. So we all know it can be hard to find other people who do want to engage in these deep topics. And me and Chris are exactly in the same boat as you. And we would love to just have deep conversations with other like-minded people like yourself and explore these topics. So anyway, we would love it all if you guys would join us in our monthly online hangouts where we have some fun, deep conversations. So if this does tickle your fancy, please head over to our Patreon page, join in the community. And this can be found on our Send website or alternatively go to www.patreon. So anyway, let's jump in with this one. Enjoy. Yeah, definitely. As well, Tom, I was going to say as well, we're so glad to have you back on the podcast. And um, since we last spoke as well, me and Chris as well, we sort of both evolved as people as well and expanded our understanding in uh, many different areas as well of the human experience and also gained a much bigger insight into the understanding of the work that you've been doing for many years. And we really are just looking forward to sort of digging deeper into your mind as well this time around. And um, we have been really looking forward to having a conversation with you. And this is a topic now as well that is sort of, it's definitely been talked about more and more since we're, we've last talked about it as well. And um, 
if we look around, look around now, sort of um, when we when we did last talk, it was sort of there was a sliver of this sort of these theories coming out there and more people talking about it and building up momentum. But now, since we've last spoken, and it was nearly probably a year and a half ago now, there's so much more momentum now built up in regards to the simulation theory, and there's now more and more people sort of coming forward in the mainstream, even sort of um, academic physicists as well and scientists and things like that now coming forward as well. Which at one time, if you think about, would have been would have put their sort of careers on the line as well, which is very interesting. And there's been this huge shift now that's come around. Yes, I've seen this uh, slowly taking off for the last decade. I published these uh, books in 2002, and at that time, myself and maybe two other people on the planet thought that uh, you know the simulation hypothesis or virtual reality was a was a really good idea, and everybody else thought it was nuts. So now it's kind of gone the other way. It's become mainstream now, as you say, and uh, there's a lot of physics that's been pointing in that direction, uh, steadily coming in over the last decade, and people are starting to pile on that bandwagon because it's the only concept that works. It's better physics. Yeah, I love that, by the way, Tom, as well. And that's what I absolutely love about you, Tom, is because you're sort of, you're bringing forward all this information, but you also have sort of your huge credentials behind it as well. And you're actually sort of, what I like about you, Tom, is you're actually sort of willing to sort of dive into them philosophical areas where not many other people are willing to go and just say sort of, look at the data, here it is. That's what, that's what I love about you, Tom. <laughs> well, that's, I don't know any other way to do it. So yeah. uh, nothing special about me there. That's just how I am. Yeah, definitely. Tom, I don't know about you, but um, me and Chris were talking about this before the podcast in, um, in regards to your work and how your work's come forward over the last few years. But I was actually wanting to ask you this question. Do you actually think sort of there's actually sort of a, um, like a war going on sort of like for the terms of like describing the nature of reality? Sort of people are sort of holding on to something. If something new comes along, they just sort of dismiss it. Would you agree with that? Oh, yes. It's always that way. That's not just something happening now. You know, you're going to look back through history um, and you'll see that uh, all the big new ideas, you know, new ideas that introduced um, a paradigm shift where we see reality in a different way, um, all of those um, were ridiculed at first, uh, thought to be nuts, um, took them a long time before they got accepted, and they never come out of the center of uh, thought, philosophy, or science, they always come out of the margin, you know, off, off from the side, out of left field is where they, uh, where they come from. It's not like somebody that's, that's uh, part of the center of science says, oh, you know, I have a better idea because all the people at the center are kind of committed to the status quo. That's what they base their careers on. So it's something has to come from the outside and penetrate, and to penetrate that middle is difficult. So it takes time. Yes, people in the middle, that is the kind of the, the people carrying the status quo and the science at the time, they don't want to change too much because they're very invested in things being the way it is. You know, they, they, the change is disruptive. Change, you know, makes them not quite on top of the game anymore because there's, there's a new game now so it's challenging and we also have uh, you know sciences like physics that's been around for a while uh, for several hundred years anyway has their own set of beliefs now they are believers just like any other bunch of believers you know they they have their ideas of the way reality has to be 
and that is materialistic and deterministic. It's based on matter, and it's very difficult for people of any sort to take in new data that is contrary to their beliefs. That's just the way people are. Yeah, Tom, I agree. I think it's a shame that many of these um, these different thought p- patterns can never just um, accept other people's views and opinions and they really try to dismiss a lot of the claims. Maybe that's something that's holding a lot of it all back, to be honest, and it's a shame that yeah. it actually does happen. And it's, well, uh, you know, there's a, there's a good part about that too. Uh, one of the things that's, that's positive about that is that, yes, it makes it difficult for new ideas to, you know, to struggle up to the top. On the other hand, it keeps a lot of bad ideas from, you know, getting up to the top too. Yeah. In other words, in order to make it to the top, you've got to, you know, you've got to really fight your way all the way, convincing people and showing people that your idea is a better idea. And immediately, everybody who first sees it says, no way, you know, can't be true. What I, what I believe is true and what you believe is nonsense. But if it's a really good idea, it'll keep coming back. There'll be a couple of people say, well, you know, I think maybe you're right. That is a good idea. And then a couple more and then a couple more. So the good ideas eventually float to the top, but not too quickly. And some of that's good news and some of that's bad news. It's bad news that, you know, good ideas have to struggle so hard to, you know, to get uh, uh, noticed. But it's also good that uh, just any old idea can't jump to the top and run off because it's a fad or, uh, you know, everybody uh, gets taken in by something that doesn't really have much quality to it. So it's good and it's bad. It's just the way it is. Yeah, definitely. I love I love that by the way, Tom, as well. And it's very interesting because um, one of them sort of one of them big debates on my mind at the minute that's sort of coming around now. And I, I wanted to actually touch on this with you, Tom, as well. Is is a debate going on over sort of consciousness? It's very interesting because a lot of people now in um, sort of mainstream media and things like that, some people are talking about how seeing that consciousness don't even, doesn't even exist. And there's some people also saying that sort believe that sort of consciousness resides in everything. And there's also people talking about how. Um, consciousness is actually sort of an emerging thing that our um that is only emerging because our brains are so advanced but i was actually wondering for tom and uh, for you tom as well and i want to propose this to you where do you actually stand on the topic of consciousness because this is a big topic uh, currently on a lot of people's minds in the air uh, in the sort of general public yes well consciousness is starting to become more interesting mm-hmm. because of the same reasons that virtual reality is becoming more interesting uh, science is telling us that this physical reality is not, you know, the way our reality works. That's not fundamental. It's derived from something else. So that, even though they haven't yet uh, accepted virtual reality as that something else, it opens up this this can of worms that says, well, if, you know, this reality is not matter-based, then what is it? And, of course, there's always uh, been the idealists from the philosophy goes back several centuries that uh, reality is is uh, mind-based you know it's consciousness based so that argument now gets more credence once the idea that it's material based begins to fail and fail publicly so that's why i think there's a lot more interest in in uh, consciousness now just like there's a lot more interest in virtual reality and yes you have all the extremes you have the the scientists, the, the materialists and determine, determinists saying consciousness doesn't exist. And the reason for them saying that is that consciousness falls outside of their material 
science. It falls outside of materialism. It's neither deterministic. You see, we have free will. We have consciousness, and consciousness and free will go together. Then uh, if you believe that everything has to be materialistic and deterministic, then you have to throw out free will. And if you throw out free will, then consciousness doesn't mean anything. You know, what is consciousness if it can't make a choice? If it, you know, if it can't do anything. So that's where you have the ones that say consciousness doesn't exist. They're just coming out of the determinism, uh, materialism, and they're forced into that statement that consciousness doesn't exist, even though on the face it would seem like a pretty dumb statement because here we are and we're conscious, and you're conscious enough to make the statement that consciousness doesn't exist. Well, you know, it, it's, it's obvious that that's not the case, that we do have consciousness, that it does exist. It's also pretty obvious to the casual observer that free will exists, that people do make choices. They choose among the things that, you know, are, are available to them at the time. So both of those things are pretty intuitively obvious, just if you open your eyes and look around. But if you're a scientist and you're stuck with materialism and determinism, you can't agree with that. So you say something preposterous like consciousness doesn't exist and there is no free will just because that maintains your belief in physical reality and materialism and determinism. So that's why you have that group. It's not so much that they really believe that, but they have to say that in order to maintain their belief system. Then you have the opposite group that uh, is kind of pan- you know, pan-consciousness, I guess, um, pan-psychism, I think it's called, which is consciousness in everything. And when you say that, now suddenly you have to wonder, well, what's the definition of consciousness that it's in everything? Uh, you know, what is consciousness? You know, what is, what is a rock's consciousness like? And what does it do? And what kind of choices does it make? And what about a rock's free will? Can it decide to roll uphill if it wants to? You know, that's then you have all those questions, and that doesn't really make sense either. So what I have done is I've defined consciousness as, some, as, a, as an awareness that has a finite decision space. That means it has choices to make. It has decisions to make. Even if it's only one of two decisions, I can do this or that, and I have the free will to choose which one it is, then that's consciousness, a very, very limited consciousness because it only can choose two things, a very limited awareness only between two things. But that would be my bottom level, the simplest, uh, lowest level of consciousness. If it has no decision space, that means no free will, no choices, then I would say, by my definition, it's not conscious. So a rock is not conscious, an atom is not conscious, you know, and you can get to gray areas like uh, trees or plants. Well, you know, they, uh, they sometimes seem to be aware of certain things in their environment, but can you determine whether they're actually making free will choices or whether they're just following the rule set? In other words, they've got algorithms. Certain chemicals appear in the soil, certain fungi appear in the soil, so they do this, and it's all kind of like a computer program. It's deterministic. It's not free will choice. So we don't know about that because it's really hard to tell with things like plants. I would guess now, I'm just guessing, that a plant may have awareness but not consciousness. That means it can be aware of things, can take input, a vague awareness of its environment and what's going on, you know, both above and below the ground, I guess. But it doesn't actually make choices about it. It just is aware. 
but without choice. It can't say, oh, I'm going to do this or that. All of that's just, uh, uh, you know, part of the rule set. It does what it does because that's the rule set. So that would be my guess, but I could be wrong on that. You know, we look at other uh, things that are uh, not, uh, you know, that, that maybe have a few choices and they're hard to tell. Look at a clam, you know, or an oyster, um, you know, or a slug. Do they have choices or are they just acting on instinct, which means it's hardwired? Yeah. It's this rule set. Well, it's hard to tell, you know. Clever psychologists and biologists may make tests up to determine whether or not they make actual choices but you know even learning can be algorithmic it doesn't have to have free will to learn a computer can learn it can just look at uh, what choices you make and then decide that it'll offer up those kinds of choices to you you know ahead of time because those are the ones you normally make so it can learn the kind of things you do it can learn you know lots of things so computers can learn. That's algorithmic. So just the fact that you teach something to go through a maze doesn't necessarily mean it's making a conscious choice. It may just be patterning its neurons in such a way that it's creating memory and it goes back and repeats the memory that succeeds. That may not be a choice. Anyhow, eventually you get up high enough. Like my, my best example is bumblebees. You get the bumblebees and some other insects that are kind of low on the on the uh, um, decision space category, but they've got some decisions. You can watch the things they do, that it's not all just mechanical, that it's not all just logical process. They actually, you know, do things for purpose, and depending on conditions, they'll approach it differently. They're making choices. And then you get up to the other animals, you know, like fish and birds and dogs and cats and horses and pigs and things. And then they obviously are conscious. They obviously make choices. They're not just robots, uh, you know, working on, uh, on an algorithm. They can look at the environment and have several choices and make, make choices. And then we get to the, to the uh, you know, to us, to the humans, and we have a huge decision space. We have lots of decisions, lots of choices that we can make, even if we're not aware of, of a lot of them, we, we have lots of choices. So that's kind of the way I'd look at those arguments. Now, where, what do I see consciousness being? I see consciousness, well, I start with my theory with consciousness as an assumption, just that consciousness exists. And I do that because you can't go back and look at the invention or the, uh, the, the beginning of consciousness unless you can get outside of consciousness. You see, you can't uh, look at yourself being born because you're not born yet. You see, it's one of those things. It's a logical problem. You can't, you don't, you don't exist to watch yourself exist because you don't exist yet. You see what I mean? It's just a, it's just a logic issue. So you can't actually uh, experience or see or have direct knowledge about uh, how consciousness initially came into being. But I, I, I start with an assumption of what I call a basic unit of consciousness. It's the simplest consciousness that could possibly exist. It's not very bright. It doesn't have but two choices in that it can choose between this way and that way. It's got this sense, this awareness of thisness and thatness. And that just means two different things. We could say of a one or a zero, right, a binary pair. And if you have a consciousness that's just aware of that much and nothing else, but it can choose which state to be in, it can choose a one or a zero on purpose. 
That means it's conscious. So that's that. Remember, I told you that's that lowest limit of consciousness is it just chooses between two things. Yeah. Well, if you have that, then that can evolve to be the larger consciousness system of which we are a part. It just evolves like anything else evolves. You know, it tries things, uh, things work, those things last, the things that don't work go away, and eventually it's got this and that and that and this and, you know, lots of ones and lots of zeros. Then it starts making patterns and patterns of patterns, and then it can make the this and that switch, this, that, this, that, this, that, and that defines a metronome, and now it's defined time. And so all of this kind of grows up together. So if you start with a with a with the very simplest idea of consciousness and then just let evolution take that and do what comes normal and what comes normal is that you know all evolution has to evolve toward criteria well for let's say our our uh, physical evolution here in the simulator our criteria is uh, survival and procreation if you got those two things down then you will continue if you don't have those two things down, then you will disappear and become extinct. Mm. So in consciousness, there's only one criteria, and that is entropy reduction. You see, information is what we were talking about, a this way, that way. That's information. That's a one of a, or a zero. A one is a bit, and a zero is a bit. So that's just defined as information. Information, if, there, <clears throat> if all the bits are random, there is no information. Mm. If the bits are, are ordered in some way that's meaningful, you've just defined information. Well, then information exists only when the bits are ordered. Entropy is a measure of order. If you have high order, then you have low entropy. And if you have, uh, you know, lots of, or, you know, if you have high disorder, then you have high entropy. So entropy is a measure of disorder. A measure of disorder. All right. So... If you have this system, this little consciousness system, it's aware, it can make choices. Well, it can, it's just got those two choices it can make. It'll evolve to have, you know, multiple ones and zeros, patterns and so on. What it's trying to do is lower its entry. It's trying to make information. It's trying to make more complex, more, more useful, more significant information. And if, as it does that, then it gets to live. It gets to continue. If it doesn't do that and all the bits go random, then there is no information. Mm. It's back to where it started. You see, it's, it's like the original cell again. So this system will evolve and grow and become more complex, just like everything else that evolves does. And eventually you have the larger consciousness system. So that's kind of how I see where consciousness starts, where it comes from, and its limitations as to... Uh, it has to have free will and some kind of uh, finite decision space. Wow. Well, ladies and gentlemen, that is consciousness right there. <laughs> we don't need to say anymore. But, uh, actually, Tom, uh, Brad Mears, an absolutely incredible answer, by the way. I just have to say that. And uh, me and Dan's both wrote on some points, so I'm going to say my bit first, and then I'll let Dan jump in as well. Um, uh, when you, like, Tom, it's absolutely incredible, by the way, everything what you just said there. And I love that where how you said, like, if it has two choices then obviously it's consciousness of what, what it's going to be and like and it still has the awareness of choice and which i believe awareness is actually consciousness in itself i think just the mere fact that this like how even bacteria is actually evolved all the way up to who we who and what we are now the fact that every single thing is actually being being put through this process of evolution and has developed its own conscious thought it's it's 
it's absolutely crazy and I think one of the main points I wanted to come across is that um, there was a American philosopher called Thomas Nagel and I mentioned this on um, a last podcast we did with uh, me and Dan and he touched on he said like we could work out like the complete understanding of a bat like from it's all neurological pathways the whole uh, its whole system flight its whole like understanding of the universe but deep down we would have no like understanding of what a bat truly would um, live out its day like and how it would actually thought process would occur like mm-hmm. would it actually have its own like thought would it actually question its own reality and and I think this is why us right now in science we're still limited by the uh, by what we actually know because there's so much else left to discover and that's what's absolutely fascinating right now and I loved it when you started discussing about information and meaning because I think the more information we get like the more we understand like how limited we actually are I mean like when I just use the process of the bat it it really makes us think like what else is there left to know and I'll pass it on to Dan because I know he's wanting to jump in right in now as well (laughs) (laughs) yeah well it's it's, uh, we find that once we really understand a little bit more about the larger reality it becomes awfully clear that we know very very little we know a tiny tiny little percent of what there is to know yeah, definitely, Tom. I love that, by the way. And this this was a bit a point that I wrote down here, Tom, as well. I mean, I mean, I shoot us down here if this if this question is completely like out there and completely stupid or not relevant. But it was just it was just on my mind, so I thought I would just have to say it to you. But uh, when you were talking about sort of um, plant awareness and plant consciousness, I just I was thinking in my mind there in terms of um, plants that have psychedelic sort of properties, um, like such as plants like ayahuasca and things like that. I was actually wondering, I would love to know your thoughts on this, I don't know if it does, but does that actually sort of change the awareness of the plant? And I was wondering, does that actually sort of change the definition of of consciousness in the plant if it has psychedelic properties? No, I wouldn't think so. But uh, again, a plant may or may not be conscious. We'd have to do some research to determine whether it is or not. I will give plants... Some plants, anyway, uh, particularly uh, you know old old forests, trees, that sort of thing. Those are a lot more complicated plants than you know than maybe just the ayahuasca plant. But at least some plants, if not all plants, I think do have some sort of an awareness. But I don't know that they actually make choices. So I don't know that they have a consciousness. Now, would the fact that they have psychotropic chemicals in them make that awareness any different? Well, no. The reason that 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 the psychotropic chemicals uh, or the reason we call those chemicals psychotropic is because of the effect it has on human brains. Now, of course, those human brains are virtual brains, and that means it's a, it's a, it's a, uh, a reaction that's supported by the rule set. So because of the way that that chemical interacts with the rule set that defines brains, wow. then we call it psychotropic because it, uh, it affects the things that the conscious can do. Now, maybe I'll make a, a, something a little clear here is that the, the brain is a virtual brain. It's not where consciousness lives. You know, consciousness doesn't live in the brain. Consciousness uh, doesn't uh, uh, communicate like a radio signal to the brain. The brain is just a virtual brain. It's ones and zeros on a hard drive someplace. That's all the brain is. That's all the body is. That's all this whole physical universe is. When I say it's virtual, that means it's just information. It's stored information in a simulation. So the brain doesn't process anything. It doesn't store anything. It doesn't do anything like that. The consciousness is what 
processes. The consciousness is what stores. The consciousness is, is what does the analysis. So the consciousness, though, is playing this avatar. This avatar, which is a virtual thing, a virtual being, we call it an avatar, has a virtual brain. And the consciousness is limited by what that rule set says that that avatar can do. You see, so the, the, the virtual brain in the avatar sets the limits on what the conscious can do, just like the body of the avatar sets the limits on what the, what the player, what the conscious can do with that avatar. So if the consciousness player of that avatar says, okay, elf, you know, jump 100 feet in the air, well, that won't happen yeah. because the rule set in World of Warcraft where the elf lives won't support that, you see? So the, the uh, consciousness can only do with that avatar what the rule set allows it to do under various circumstances. So that's, that's the thing. So if you, if, if you uh, get a disease and have brain damage or get hit in the head and have brain damage, it doesn't mean it affects your consciousness. What it affects is your consciousness' ability to play that avatar. So now let's say you get hit in the head and you slur your words, you drag a foot, and you lose your memory, now that consciousness has to deal with an avatar who slurs its words, drags its foot, and can't, you know, can't process information from the memory. So it's just, that's just because of the rule sets, because of the, because of the science, if you will, of the biology of the brain. Wow. So that's the connection between a virtual, you know, like the virtual brain and the consciousness. So that's... You know, a lot of times people get confused on that and say, well, if it's a, you know, if it's, if it's a virtual reality, then how come you get hit in the head? It changes your consciousness. Yeah. The consciousness must be a product of the brain. No, it's not the way. When you get hit in the head, it limits the choices. It changes the decision space of the consciousness. The conscious can no longer decide to, you know, speak clearly because the rule set no longer allows it because that part of the, the uh, virtual brain that supports speaking clearly is damaged so it's it's limited just like uh, the elf can't jump too high and the elf will drown if it stays underwater too long or gets hurt if it falls off a high cliff that's just because that's the way the rule set defines that reality system wow. yeah i love that by the way as well it's tom i just wanted as well i just want to go back in time a bit as well and um i wanted to sort of um I know as well sort of delve into some of your sort of experiences that sort of led you up to where you are now because I know as well a bit of your background as well when you were um, a bit younger as well you sort of when you worked for the defense department I think it was someone actually gave you a copy of um, Bob Monroe's book I think it was about the out-body experiences mm-hmm. but what's interesting about uh, that is that you, I know that you start doing a lot of sort of the inner work and start doing um, consciousness experiments as well and what's interesting to me as well when I was thinking about that is you, you were also coming up with the same sort of ideas and conclusions that all these sort of different cultures in the past were as well, when they were also doing the inner work. And what's interesting to me as well, on top of that as well, about you as well, that like you were sort of doing that inner work, but you also had the sort of the science to back it up, which I thought very, which is which is very fascinating. Yeah, well, it took both. You know, I couldn't have come to the conclusions that I've come to about the way reality works if I had just tried to work the problem from the outside, which is what most people do. You know, from the outside, I mean, you think about it, and then come up to some kind of answer based on, on you know, your uh, physical experience. And that is just too hard to do. The reason that I was able to understand the consciousness in reality is that I was 
doing both careers at the same time. I'm a physicist, so I think like a physicist. I want logical, precise, repeatable answers. And at the same time, I was experiencing, you know, the larger consciousness system. And I had a need to put those two together so that I could understand it. But if I didn't have access to the larger consciousness system, I don't think I could have, and nobody else has either, really uh, understood how, you know, consciousness and reality connect with each other. I mean, lots of people have said, well, yeah, our reality is, is based on uh, consciousness. That was a philosophy called the idealist, started with Plato, you know, way back in, what, 500 B.C., and has uh, was very uh, um, favored by the German uh, philosophers, what, in probably the 1800s. Uh, Kant, for instance, uh, was an idealist, and uh, many others. But so, but uh, so that idea has been around a long time. But that's different than actually saying how does it work? You know, explaining how consciousness derives physics, explaining how you know consciousness solves you know quantum mechanics problems and and relativity problems and a lot of other things in science, and understanding the structure and why it is that consciousness can can um, you know do things like um, you know heal the body. Yeah, yeah. And and uh, you know, there's this consciousness, uh, virtual reality interaction, and what are the limits to that interaction? So actually understanding the structure of how it works and how it connects and explains the stuff in this reality is a different animal than just saying, I think reality is consciousness. That's something has been around a really long time, but we haven't had the concepts to to uh, understand virtual reality until just the last you know, what, 30 years. Virtual reality has been something that was was uh, not, a, not a concept. It wasn't an idea to even play with on the table until, you know, what did, how long ago was it that we started with, with some of the first, you know, video games, first little games like Pong, you know, and Space Invaders. Those were kind of really, really thin and, and uh, not very interesting virtual realities. But, you know, that was the beginning. And that's what, in the 1980s, you know, it's just not that long ago. So um, virtual reality is a new concept. But now we have uh, computer programs like uh, No Man's Sky. And No Man's Sky uh, does its computations very much the way the larger conscious system does computations. So now we'll have people who will be familiar with this idea of computing a data stream on the fly for each player, which is the way consciousness works. That's the way, uh, that's really been the first virtual reality to work that way, but No Man's Sky is going to introduce a whole lot of virtual realities that will be based on that concept that will come over the next decade. And uh, that then, as people get real used to that, this idea when I when I tell them about reality is that, you know, it's based on a data stream, yeah. they won't have so much trouble getting that because they will have already experienced it in the more advanced video games. Yeah, definitely. I think as well, and definitely, you're completely right, Tom. In the future, when that does evolve, it's going to completely, it's going to be interesting to see how it plays out in sort of the masses' minds as well. That, but Tom, as well, just to jump back as well, at the time when you were working with Bob Monroe and you were doing sort of the consciousness experiments and things like that, mm. the, the, I was actually wondering there must have been some time in through them experiences that some sort of on uh, life shifting experiences that sort of led you down the path where you are now. I was wondering, was there any certain thing that sort of shifted your perspective or made you? 
few reality sort of different when you were pursuing yeah, things? Well, there was a, there was a lot of them, uh, a lot of things that that did. You know, I uh, I began a real early in my uh, uh, you know going out to uh, to uh, Monroe Laboratories with Bob Monroe. Real early in that process, I started seeing auras, started seeing energy patterns around things, and that was something I had to, you know, I had to play with. It's like, what is that? You know, is it really there? You know, close your eyes, open them again, and see, is it still there? Oh, it is. Uh, You know, see if anybody else sees them. You know, that kind of thing. So eventually, I played with them and and kind of understood what they were and began to be able to ascribe some sort of meaning to them. And then I realized that uh, you didn't have to actually look at the thing. All you had to do is think about the thing. That the you know, that was a big that was a big learning. And that happened when my when my friend who was doing this with me, Dennis Menrick, showed me a, a photograph and asked me to pick out the one person I think out of five people that was the psychic in that group. And I thought, well, you know, how am I going to do that? And I thought, well, if they were here. I could just look at their auras and see, you know, how developed they were in that in that area with uh, their aura. So I decided to do it in the picture, and there it was. It worked just the same for the picture as it did for people. And after that, I realized that it wasn't something that was, say, around a body. It was just information. You could get that information from a database. It was available information, not really body-centered or, or hooked to the body at all. So that was like a big aha moment that I wasn't looking at energy surrounding a physical body generated by the physical body, generated by consciousness inside the physical body or by the electromagnetic fields in the physical body. It had nothing to do with the physical body. It was just information. You could see it in a picture or I didn't even need a picture. If you could somehow define, you know, what it was you wanted to, to find, then you could get that data and information about it uh, uh, without the picture, mm-hmm. without any knowing much about it at all other than, a, than an address, which is the way remote viewers work. You see, they don't, need, they don't need any hints. All they need is go to the place whose coordinates are in this sealed envelope, and that's the only, yeah. that's the only, that's the only directions they get. And they're able to do that because it's just information. It doesn't have to, anything to do with the physical place they're going to see. They're getting information out of a database. I don't know that they know that, but that's the way that remote viewing works. Anyhow, that was one of the, the early on big ideas that suddenly told me I was looking at information, not at body-centered you know, things that the body was creating. And another big one was when Dennis and I uh, took a, out a body trip together and uh, it was recorded separately by Bob in a control room and we had our own experiences of course interactive experiences with each other and it turned out that indeed we were together Uh, our our conversation uh, you know us talking back and forth to each other was there on two separate tapes one uh, each one was individual for us and uh, we were answering each other's questions seeing the same kind of things so that then meant that Only one of two things were possible. One, that we actually were doing exactly what it seemed like. We were out in some other reality frame, seeing similar things and conversing about it, or that one of us was doing it and the other was picking it all up telepathically from that person. And those were the only two possibilities because there it was on the tape and it was real. So in either case, that means that it's real. 
you see, and that was a big one for me that uh, finally got me off the dime as far as I knew it intellectually that what we had been doing was real. The probability that we were getting the things we were getting just by chance was, you know, like one in, you know, 10,000 or something. But uh, it's hard to convince yourself at an emotional level or down at the being level that what you're doing is actually real. You always hold out for that. Well, maybe there's some other explanation. And, uh, of course, that's just you trying to deal with your beliefs. Well, that experience with Dennis then got me over that dealing with my belief thing. From then on, I didn't have to question whether it was real. Now it was just, you know, how does it work? So those were, yeah, a couple of things like that. And actually, I did an interview with Blue Sky Symposium a couple of years back, and I listed 15 things that were kind of big aha moments in my evolution over the last 40 years and that's still out there if uh you know if you want to look it up it's yeah definitely will be out there circulating around someplace i suspect it's also on my uh, youtube yeah definitely we'll we'll also link down the show notes as well as well and uh, as well thank you so much there tom for going so much deeper in that answer there as well because we were both just sitting back there thinking like what an answer when you went so deep down the rabbit hole there I've seen the, how it uh, sort of shifted your perspective. I was wondering as well, Tom. As well, just I was wondering, are you sort of still, um, are you sort of still playing about with this, the same sort of consciousness experiments that you were doing back when you were researching with Bob Monroe in your life now? No, I don't. You know, I got to a point where uh, I kind of understood the things I needed to understand, oh. and I'm not all that interested in, in, um, you know using those abilities to gather information except on very you know specific circumstances where there's something I need to know but just going out and playing with it and trying to decide you know where did this come from and how do I get it and you know what are the limitations to it I'd already answered all those questions so I don't really do that anymore but I also don't meditate anymore and the reason for that is is that I live in a meditation state all the time Uh, as one one way to put it Uh, in other words you have a you have a, a decision space, a reality that you live in. And for most people, that reality is in this virtual reality, which means in what we call our physical reality. And that's about all the reality they have. It's pretty much the physical reality, plus they have some maybe in the dream, in the dream reality. But as you grow up and your reality gets bigger, then you live in all of it. It's not like you live in the physical reality this time, you know, for a little bit, then you then you go someplace else, you go in out of body or you go to the larger conscious system and then you do that for a while. It becomes you just live in a bigger reality. So the the larger consciousness system uh, becomes your part of your world, part of the place that you live in every day all the time. And you kind of parallel process through all of that. So while I'm talking to you, let's say, and you ask me a question, if I don't have the immediate answer for it, while I'm talking to you, I go up and, and query the system and get the answer at the same time. You see, so it's it's not like I have to meditate to go there and do that. It's just available because that's the, that's the reality I live in. So it's not such a big deal. You know, it's not like I'm, you know, I do all this, this stuff uh, separately and work on it and you know meditate and get in special states and go do things it's just that you live in a bigger space in a bigger reality and you live in that reality all the time and it's all available to you all the time so I can process here in this virtual reality and at the same time be processing in other reality systems and not 
you know, it's, it's not a big deal to do that. Just like you can, with a little practice, you can have two or three um, uh, soccer games going or football, I guess you would say, games going uh, on a picture-in-picture screen, and you can keep up with all of them. It's not that hard. You know, you just kind of watch all of them at the same time. So it's the same thing. You can just keep up with uh, several different realities at once, and you can use one to get on information for another and vice versa. So, no, I don't actually do that kind of research. I don't really meditate. I just live it. Well, I love that. By the way, what an answer. I love that perspective, by the way. And it really, I was thinking in my mind there, it really does give us a good insight into the workings of your mind. And I thought it was beautiful the way you put that across there, how you said you sort of always in a living meditation. Beautiful, that, by the way. And um, as well, that's something else I want to dig into, dig into with you as well and see your thoughts on as well. And um, it's one thing that sort of um, gained a lot more momentum in sort of main, mainstream as well is that there's sort of a, um, some sort of frequency or pixel-like property at the, at the very beginning of space-time. And I've heard a lot of people talk about how um, one way you're going to sort of find out if we are sort of looking at a computer simulation, they talk about how you need to zoom in and you say from mm-hmm. that position you're going to, um, no matter how sort of, how how, um, how good quality or generated the image is, no matter how sort of sophisticated it actually is, when you do break it down, or you do get closer, you see the pixels. But I was actually wondering, does that actually statement hold true in regards to our reality? Yes, it yeah. does. Well, if we can, if we can look at a small enough, uh, you know, a small enough unit of space, we'll see that it will pixelate. There'll be, you know, it'll it'll start to break into pieces. It won't be continuous, and that also is true of our time. If we can measure small enough time, we would see that time comes in discrete chunks. Just like, uh, you know, data comes in discrete chunks on your computer screen. It's what, uh, you know, 10,000 or 10 million pixels or something on your computer screen. But if you look between pixels on your computer screen, you don't get anything at all. There's no data there. You see, your computer screen is only, you know, in those pixels. There is no between pixels. It's not defined. So you break it down into pixels, and if you look at a smaller increment than that, Either you're in the same pixel or you're in a different pixel, or if the pixels are spread out, you can be between pixels. And it depends on how those pixels are are arranged. But yes, our reality is like that, and it's not a new idea. Back in the 1920s, probably late 20s, um, the quantum mechanics folks, uh, Heisenberg and and, uh, Schrodinger, Let's see, who would be the other ones? Um, Bohr, Niels Bohr. They uh, came up with a measure of the smallest time before time would become granular and pixelate, and they came up with a measure of the, of the smallest unit of space. They called that Planck time and uh, Planck space. And that was done back in the 20s. And their, their prediction was that this is where space and time would pixelate. That would be the smallest unit. So that's been a kind of an idea that's been around for a long time, that there indeed may be these, you know, it's never been verified in the sense because we've never been able to look at things at that short, you know, in space or time. And we're not even close. We're orders and orders of magnitude from being able to do that. So it's not something that uh, we're actually going to run in to the pixels anytime soon. We have a long way yet to go to get to that level of detail where we would see the, the pixelation of our reality. 
But if we do get there, then yes, we will be able to see it. But see, that's a little problematical because we're in this reality with, let's say, what, a microscope that looks at small things. But that microscope itself is a virtual microscope and it's made out of pixels. You see, so how do you use something made out of pixels to see to see down to the pixel level? It gets to be a bit of a problem. So we, we may or may not ever actually get there to where we can see that pixelation, but um, it's been it's consistent with quantum mechanics that it should exist, and it's of course necessary for virtual reality that it does exist. Yeah, um, yeah, it's definitely like the further we're going to evolve, Tom, and we, the further our technology is going to evolve. We're going to see all these like pixels like so more sure. in depth, and we're going to see the game natured out. And maybe it is just going to like come as like a set of ones and zeros, and that'll be fascinating. <laughs> <wouldn't it>? yeah. <laughs> well, you know, there's some things we know that also, besides uh, the the uh, Planck constant, that points to that. You know, one of the big mysteries in physics is that uh, why does the speed of light a constant? And that's a big mystery. It should not be that way. But if you look at virtual realities and think of it in terms of pixels, then every virtual reality has to have a speed limit. Now, ours is the speed of light. And what it is, is if you move one unit from one pixel to the next pixel in space, and you do that in one time unit to the next time unit, in other words, one pixel at a time gets you one pixel of space. That's as fast as anything can move through that virtual reality. That's the, that's the upper speed limit. You can't move faster than one pixel in one unit of time. Now, you could theoretically, if you could teleport, you know, if, if, if your uh, reality was not consistent, it wasn't, kind um, of think of the word, uh, it, it wasn't a consistent, um, a consistent reality. You know, things would, would appear and disappear all over the place kind of randomly. If it was that kind of a reality, then yes. Then in a, in a single pixel, you could... I mean, in a single time unit, you could maybe jump pixels, but that's not the kind of reality that we live in, or that's not a, a reality that's really of any interest. But in a reality of interest where motion is, you know, is relatively smooth, then you can't just teleport around. So you have to move no more than one pixel per one delta T. And in our reality, if you take a Planck distance, a Planck length, divide it by a Planck time, you get the speed of light. That's the that's the uh, speed. You know, is is distance over time. So in any virtual reality, in World of Warcraft, if you take a pixel of distance, you know, that it creates over a pixel of time, which is how often it refreshes that pixel, that will tell you the maximum speed of anything of any object in World of Warcraft. So every virtual reality has an upper speed limit. So there's no big secret or no big mystery about why the speed of light is our upper speed limit in this reality. It's because it's a virtual reality. So see, there's a, there's a way that we can look at what we can measure, the speed of light, know that it's always a constant under all conditions, and the only way to explain that is because it's in pixels. Both time and space are in pixels. That's what forces it to be a constant. Wow, <laughs> that was amazing, that mind-blowing there, by the way. Wow, now that was a killer part one. And all through this podcast, I was just constantly looking at my hands and looking at the sky and just questioning, is this a simulation? But anyway, thanks so much for listening to the podcast. And if you do want to 
do some more digging and research before part two next week i would recommend checking out tom's book my big tour or going to the going on youtube and watching some of more of tom's videos anyway thanks for listening and if you really do believe in what we're doing for the podcast please just take a few minutes and support the podcast if you can and every bit will help and be amazing and we would love it if all you guys would join us in our monthly online hangouts where we have some deep fun conversations so if any way of this does tickle your fancy please head over to our patreon page and join on the community anyway thanks so much for listening to the podcast we love you all we'll catch you next week keep seeking everyone peace